Father, again, we ask for you to visit with us, for you to give us understanding. And God, in life, there are so many things that happen that, that we don't understand. And God, we just had an example of that. But Jesus, we look your direction, and we want to understand you and your heart. Everything else can change, but we want to have confidence in what is unchanging and true about you. And so, Jesus, we remember you in this moment, and we pray that you'd open up this passage that we might see the one who's trustworthy. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I've loved teaching through Mark's gospel. Um, I've enjoyed really every week, and each week been very excited to get to the next passage until this week, uh, where this week is kind of a unique and quirky passage that's left me, honestly, a little bit nervous as we've gotten closer and closer to Mark chapter 7. It's a story you might be familiar with. It logs the story of the Syrophoenician woman. Uh, at first glance, though, the story houses a couple of kind of pretty cringy moments that for us as English speakers that are removed by a couple languages uh, from the original language that Jesus is dialoguing with this woman in and removed culturally, uh, not just significantly geographically, but then through centuries, for us we look at this and can almost be taken back and almost offended and assuming that she ought to be offended with us. But then you start to see that she wasn't and we realize that maybe the quirk is with us. But you'll see in a moment, this is a quirky story for sure. It's a story that's recorded in Mark and in Matthew's gospel. They both include it for us. And you should know that not everything Jesus did is recorded in a gospel account. There are so many things. In fact, in John's gospel, he finishes by saying, if we were to have recorded everything that he did and taught, even if all the world was used to, to house all of those records, every book in the world could not house the records of all that Jesus did and accomplished and taught. And, and so he told you there'd be volume upon volume upon volume upon volume. And so the gospel writers are specific and selective about what they wrote. They're not just that, but they're also at times shifting away from chronological order of what he did and the order that he accomplished it, and they shift into thematic order. And it's something we've already seen Mark do intentionally. In fact, he just did it uh, just a chapter ago where it talks about he gathered all of the apostles to himself. On the heels of that, it says that all of the Pharisees gathered there to him. There's this intentional contrast that Mark does by placing those two stories one after another, showing that all of Jesus' friends gathered to him, whose mission really was to help Jesus. But then all of Jesus' foes gather against him with the purpose of trying to hinder him. So you see Mark doing this to contrast things, and he does it clearly here again, because right on the, the heels of the Pharisees coming to Jesus and his disciples with the frustration that the disciples are eating with unwashed hands, and then all of a sudden they have this, uh, this confrontation with Jesus where Jesus deconstructs their opinion that their outward righteousness, their outward action and, and adherence to the law is what made them good enough in God's sight. Jesus will take that apart brick by brick in the previous section of scripture we talked about, leaving them with the realization that it's not about external modification, but following Jesus would be about internal heart transformation. That if we're going to be made clean, it's not going to be about what we do that's a ritual, or it's not going to be based in external ritualistic religious piety. Instead, it was going to be accomplished by Jesus' grace and a heart transformation that would take place. So Jesus addresses those who had an idea of what would make a person clean, but now what Jesus does in Mark's story, he lays this story right next to it, is he proves to us the kinds of people that can be made clean. 
Because up until this point, those who were a part of this first century movement of Jesus have really only seen him, with very little exception to this, interacting with Jews, and they believe that they exclusively were capable of being made clean by God. And so Jesus tells them, the way you're going to be made clean is not by your works, but it's going to be by a move of God's grace. And it's not just you who can be made clean. He's going to make it very clear here by going to an unclean village to deal with an unclean woman who has an unclean daughter who's filled with an unclean spirit, it says. He's going to go to her and make her clean. So he's going to redefine the way that the people are viewing what makes someone right in God's sight. And it's not going to be based on what they do. It's going to be based upon the goodness and grace of Jesus and what he's willing to do for them based on mercy, not on what they deserve, not on what they have earned, not on what their even or their, their genetic connection to a tribe and a commitment that God had made to that tribe of people, it wouldn't be connected to any of those things. So Jesus is here going to start, kickstart a, a season, a stretch in Mark's gospel of time in Gentile territory. He's going to go northwest of where he's been by the Sea of Galilee uh, to the coast of the Mediterranean. It's modern day Lebanon to an area of Tyre and Sidon. And he's going to go there, which is a startling develop in the story that for us who are de detached from the culture, we don't see it as so startling or shocking. But he's going to go there to them to begin doing amongst the Gentiles what he's already been accomplishing amongst the Jews. And what he's going to do is kick off that stretch of time with this interaction with this Syrophoenician woman. So Mark 7, verse 24. From there, Jesus arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and wanted no one to know it. But he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about Jesus, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman, she was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, let the children be filled first. Let the children eat first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table from, eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, for this saying, go your way, the demon is gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her, da her daughter now lying on the bed. She's healed. She's made whole. Okay, now if you're not familiar with the story now that we've read it, you might recognize why I felt a little bit nervous about this, what feels like almost an odd and awkward interaction that Jesus has with this lady. But there's three just observations I want to make about the story as we work our way through this, and then we're going to celebrate communion together. So the three observations, I think, is that we're meant as we look at this story to realize to realize that, that the story is presented for us to demonstrate this woman's approach to God, to show us a right approach to God, to show us what her faith looked like. So that's the first thing we're going to observe is her, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time, well, the, we're not spending quite a bit of time because we're already rocking and rolling here, and we're going to have communion, but we'll spend a chunk of time talking about her, and then we're going to kind of land the plane and wrap up and head towards communion by then talking about how we're meant to recognize in this story Jesus' compassion and power. 
It's not just the lady, but we're to look Jesus' directions. And then that we're meant, a third and final thing, we're meant to not just recognize Jesus' power, but really to respond to it. It's his compassion and power. That we're meant to respond to what we see in Jesus. So that's what we're going uh, to do together. You, you probably noticed as the story started that it kicks off like a few other stories now have already in Mark's gospel, where it tells you that Jesus is looking to get away unnoticed where it seems like Jesus is trying to get a break, but that's another, uh, it quickly becomes another failed attempt in the life of Jesus to get a break. Because even in this distant land, amongst Gentiles in a Gentile village, as soon as he arrives there, he's instantly recognized and this woman makes her way towards him. Now this woman, the poor lady, has at least a handful of things really working against her. Well, her nationality is the first thing. She's a Gentile. It makes that very clear both here and in Matthew's gospel. So she's not a Jew. She has no right to a Jewish heritage or lineage or even to approach a Jewish Messiah in this moment. So she has that against her. But she also has even her, her own identity as a woman against her in a suppressive culture. And you need to hear me say this because I think it's just worth reminding you of that, that the Christian message does not compound a suppressive culture. It exposes it and flips it on its head. In our modern 21st century cultures, we typically say, well, the Christian message or the opinion is the Christian message is regressive and suppressive to women. You've probably heard people say that, but that's just not the case. Think about every country in the world that has been open to a Judeo-Christian narrative. Those are the countries and cultures where women's rights have been radically reshaped over the centuries. The, the countries that are closed to a Judeo-Christian message are the, the countries where this exists still, where this kind of chauvinism drives a woman into a suppressive role where she's less than human compared to a man. It's think of the caste system in India. Think of Islamic nations where women are, are seen more as an object than an individual and an entity made in the image of God. Intrinsically value, valuable. In scripture, it says that God makes Adam out of the dust and out of Adam. Now think of this. That does not mean God makes Adam in his own image and then out of Adam, kind of like a, a 1A and now a 1B, a lesser, farther removed from God. Out of Adam, he makes woman. That's not what it's communicating. It's saying out of Adam, out of the same substance. It's speaking of equality in the book of Genesis. From a rib, think of this, not from a bone from his head that she would rule over him, nor from a bone from his foot that he could walk all over her, but a bone from his side under his arm, close to his side, this is a peer. Male and female, both in the image of God, he created them, the book of Genesis tells you. You need to know that though the culture was against this woman because of her identity as a woman, this was not Jesus feeling this way. In fact, Jesus' teachings will flip this on its very head. She had a handful of things against her, her nationality, her identity as a woman, even the disciples here seem against her. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 15, it logs this same story, and it says that they urge Jesus to send her away. They just tell him as she enters the house and begins to beg and plead, please, it says, she keeps crying out against us. Can't you send her away? Get rid of her. It's not just the disciples. Clearly, Satan is against her. Destroying her home, a demon possessing her daughter, what, what that would put them both through is, is horrendous to picture. Even in this moment, Jesus, for us, almost seems against her, where she comes begging and pleading. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, it says that Jesus doesn't even initially respond, that he waits until she asks again and again, and then he responds, even in a moment. Those first moments, it looked as if maybe even Jesus 
was maybe opposed to her. Because even when he does respond, his response doesn't give you warm fuzzies inside, does it? When he says, well, you know how the family works. When the family sits down for a meal at the table, it's not right for me to give the food off the table that belongs to the children to give it to a little puppy. It's best if I, be, if I would, it's the right thing for me to do to feed the children, my children first. And that's when she says, oh, but the, even the puppies get the little crumbs that fall from the table. Listen, in the midst of this messy moment where we're scratching our heads a little bit about this uh, little interaction that Jesus had, we're meant to observe something. We're meant to observe her really great faith, her approach to God. Think about it. That's what we're meant to observe here. It, it's recorded for us because this is significant, this moment. And in fact, Matthew 15 tells you that Jesus was surprised and moved by her faith, that she had, he said, great faith. And, and really, one of the remarkable things about this story is this is really the first person who gets it, who gets one of Jesus' parables or parabolic statements, because that's what this is. As Jesus jumps into parabolic language, this is the first time in the Gospels where someone gets it, where someone actually understands it. Because remember, he'd say it to the crowds, and it says, and the crowds don't understand, and then they leave, and then the disciples would grab him and pull him aside and be like, hey, you mind telling us what you meant over there? Because none of us understand you either. And this lady stays engaged. In fact, she seems to get it so much that she's neither offended nor put off. Instead, she continues to engage in his banter, in that parable, recognizing her position in that story, and leans into Jesus with even more faith. Listen, there's a, a couple of things that I just want you to notice about this lady that I think are worth you slowing down and considering about your approach to God. And the first is that when she approached him, she approached with genuine desperation. Genuine desperation. In Matthew's gospel, it says when she first came, she said, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David is a messianic title. Apparently, she's in close enough proximity to the Galilean region that believed in these messianic traditions that one day the Jewish Messiah would come and deliver his people from their, their sin and their slavery. And she's crying out, believing that that's who Jesus is. But then she cries out a second time, almost with more of a personal and sincere approach where she removes any of the formalities of a title and she just says, Lord, please have mercy on me. It says she falls down before him and she begins to worship him saying in Matthew's gospel, Lord, help me. She worshiped Jesus before even receiving her response. She worshiped Jesus even before getting the, the, the deliverance, the healing that she was there to receive. She worshiped Jesus and believed him and departed by faith, trusting him before she even had proof that he would provide what she had asked for. She took him, what she had heard about him, about his character and power. She, she believed that and then took him at his word when he said, your faith, oh, your great faith, your daughter's made well. And she was willing to depart. Man, I've had so many moments in life, I think especially for Lindsay and I together, where, where we've had stuff that's just like knocked us on our butts. This morning, right, right before church started, um, I got one of those text messages that you just dread to get, where it's like you find yourself, for me this morning, physically trembling, like, I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to grab a friend and say, would you just pray for me? I'm so overwhelmed by this. We've had so many moments like that, that you then pray and wait for the provision to come, healing or direction to arrive. 
But to be a person of faith means that we choose to dance in the kitchen together long before they come. Because we're dancing on the confidence, we're celebrating, we're hopeful in the confidence we have in the goodness of Jesus and the power of Jesus. And we'll take him at his word that he does love us and care for us and will provide for us. Not that everything, the promise of the kingdom is not that everything will be made easy for us, but that everything will one day be made right. And I trust that he knows what to do and when to do it. And so faith is the choice like this woman to say, Jesus, I believe, and so I'll depart even before I have proof that she's been healed. I'll depart and go home believing you. Faith is the willingness to dance in the kitchen long before provision has arrived, long before the answer has been heard. Now, because of her close proximity to these Jewish communities, apparently she knew these Jewish customs because she's crying out to Jesus, son of David, promised deliverer, come and, and deliver my child. We, we assume that she knew then that she was really unfit to walk into that home and approach Jesus in the way that she did. But she doesn't seem to care about any of that. She just throws caution to the wind. Now, imagine this scene. The Pharisees were the ones depicted in the previous story. Imagine this scene if she approached a Pharisee this way. We picture him grabbing his robes and pulling them in tight to pull them away from her lest she accidentally touch one of those robes because then he'd go home and burn it. He'd pull back and begin to shout for her to get out and to move back and hollering at her that you're unclean and you're not fit for being here and it's not right for you to come to me. That's what people would have expected for her to approach a Jewish rabbi. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus leans, leans in and is intrigued by her faith and begins this banter with her. He's so different than what we'd expect. He's calm and patient. He's, he's engaged rather than dismissive or opposed to her. But for her, her burst of boldness is not so much because she's courageous rather than cowardice. In the words of Hallmark, uh, there, there are cowards, there are regular people, there are heroes, and then there are parents. And that's the category she fits in, isn't it? When you're a parent, you'll do anything it takes to get your kid help when they need it. I think it's been one of the most heartbreaking scenes that's emerged out of Afghanistan is those images of moms taking their infants, their young children, and just to imagine this as your child, because we've had those moments of, of those first interactions where the doctor quickly wipes the baby down and then hands it to you for the first time, and you hold that baby, and there is something magical that happens that connects your heart to theirs. But to have that kind of love, but also that kind of desperation that would motivate someone to hand that child to a stranger and watch that person hand it to another stranger and your child go down the line from stranger to stranger until they're lifted over a barbed wire fence towards a person who doesn't even speak your own language. Like what does that kind of desperation feel like? It feels like this woman that, that's the desperation she feels in this moment. That, that's what we're meant to feel when we view this story. Not just, oh, and she comes and comes to Jesus. No, she's coming like those women who would hand off their children gladly if it meant that they could be promised a better life or maybe just a, a hint of a promise at, at some safety. And, and that's what we're doing here. We're, we're meant to see this, that this is the story of the sorrow, deep sorrow of a mother a mother who, who has watched as joy has long since left her home. And we don't know when or why this happened, but we know it happened. Her, her daughter's possessed by a demon. And when we see it in scripture, when we see it in real time in our modern world as well, what happens is tragic. 
where if you've seen someone in a situation like this, tor tormented by a demon, you, you know their plight. It's tragic to watch as a demon will manifest and then you watch basically an abusive rela relationship play out before your eyes. It's horrendous to see. And I'd bet when all of this began, when this first happened in their home, I'll bet that their friends in their community rallied, rallied to their side. But unfortunately, like many of us who maybe have suffered, especially for those of you who have suffered with a chronic illness, at some point you know that the crowds dissipate, that the questions stop coming, that the support is no longer there in moments. And for those who have really suffered, you know that sometimes the worst part of our suffering is the isolation that comes from it. Sometimes that isolation is even more painful than the suffering itself. She came alone. We're meant to feel these things in the story. We're meant to see the despair in her eyes and hear it in her voice. That this is a woman who came just saying, have mercy. Did you catch what she said though? She said, have mercy on me. For her watching her daughter, she doesn't come and say, have mercy on her. The pain that she's carrying is so deep and so real and so powerful that she's saying, have mercy on me as a mama to have to watch this happen. You know, when we had first, uh, we just had one child, when Riley had first arrived, she was getting a little older, was just learning to talk, and I don't know why, but rather than just, you know, shortcutting to dad or daddy, I became yeah, yeah, which some tell me is like southern slang for grandma. <laughs> Go figure. I think it's because my wife and I, as we would engage, my daughter would hear the response of my wife when we'd talk about things, and she'd say, yeah, 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 like... Uh, <laughs> But I remember when Riley got sick, she might have been two years old, and she was throwing up a lot that night. And I remember we, we ended up bringing her in bed with us, and we'd notice she'd be asleep, but then she'd start to move around and groan, and so we'd run her to the bathroom, and she'd throw up again. And I remember it's probably the fifth time that we'd made a trip like that, running her towards the toilet, where I'm holding her body, and I grab her arms and pull them to her side so she's not pushing herself away from the toilet. And as I'm holding her there, she starts crying, and she just says, no, yeah, yeah, no. It did something terrible to my heart. Because I realized she thought I was making this happen. She looked at me as, you're the one who's meant to protect me. No, yeah, yeah, no. Not again, don't do this to me again. Because every time I took her there, because I saw that her body was betraying her, her body would betray her and she'd throw up. But in her little mind, the simplest way she saw it was, don't do this to me anymore. I tell you, I have not looked at a parent with a child with a chronic illness the same ever since that moment. Because as, as simple as a stomach flu was that lasted just a few hours, what it did in my own heart compared to what it must be like for someone to watch their child suffer day in and day out, there's no wonder she arrives and says, Jesus, please have mercy on me as a mama. She falls at his feet in desperation which if Jesus is good and if he's powerful is not a bad place to be. But she doesn't just come in desperation, she stayed in persistence. That's the other thing that's worth noting here. She stayed in persistence. She kept asking, verse 26 tells you, she kept asking Jesus, heal my daughter. And I think this is where desperation leads us. If we're truly desperate, then, then there's a willingness for us to be persistent. But if I were in her shoes, I may have given up at some point along the way. 
I may have questioned, like, Jesus, are you making this, are you making this unnecessarily more difficult for me than it needs to be? But Jesus wasn't doing that. He wasn't making it difficult. He was drawing faith out of her. That's what he was doing. He was drawing faith out of this mother. And again and again in the Gospels, what Jesus will do is he'll interact with people and he'll ask them questions that, does, that never needed to be asked. He's going to find himself in front of Bartimaeus in the future in Mark's Gospel. And when they bring Bartimaeus to him, who's a blind man who's begging for alms, he'll say to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? The question had an easy answer right in front of him. He was already begging to be made well, to be made whole, to be able to see. Jesus, though, wanted Bartimaeus to have the chance to express faith. He was drawing faith out of him so that Jesus then could respond to that faith and touch and heal and give what was needed. The reason Jesus does that again and again in the Gospels of giving people opportunity to express and exercise faith by drawing it out of them is because Scripture tells us without faith it's impossible to please Him. You can have any list of things that you think, well, unless I'm doing this, I can't please God. He said the only thing was without faith, you'll never please me. It's what He wants from you, your trust. Now, in this story, there's a couple of key words that, that I think we need to understand that, that from Greek to Latin to English get a little jarbled for us. And we, we miss some of the understanding or, or some of the meaning of this passage and this banter that goes back and forth. And the first one is found in verse 27, where Jesus says, it's not right for me to give what belongs to the children to the puppies. The children, it's speaking there of biological children. And that's something that the Jewish people prided themselves of. Are you seeing at the table that Jesus is describing who's seated there? The biological children of God, the commitment that God had made in a covenant to the Jewish nation, something that they prided themselves on, which they should. It's a gift that God gave them by grace that he made an unconditional covenant to them. Something that I believe is still beautiful and significant and is still relevant to us in the 21st century. But what those people who are in that covenant with God as his, in a sense, biological sons and daughters, what they failed to see was that the messianic deliverer that would come through them, that, that through that messianic deliverer, God was going to adopt many sons and daughters and graft them in, adopt them into the family. In fact, the Jews were told that they were to be a light unto the Gentiles. And it seems that they've lost sight of that, that God's de desire was to show his glory through those people to the world around them. And instead, they became exclusive and even hateful to those who are not Jews, to the Gentiles. In fact, there's a rabbinic tradition, a rabbinic tradition from the first century that's preserved for us that says it this way. As sacred food was intended for men, but not for dogs, the Torah, it's the first five books of the Old Testament, was given to God's chosen people, but not to the Gentiles. In other words, think of what they're saying. This is the cultural belief then, is that the revelation and promise of God is reserved only for us, was the attitude. Listen, they were caught up in this tradition and completely missing God's heart, massive breaking heart for all of the world. And the region that Jesus travels to here, historians tell us that this was considered a notoriously unclean area. One commentator, he described it as a place that was guilty of, of committing gross paganism and idolatry. It, it's the first... Uh, century Jewish historian uh, Flavius Josephus, who wrote about them, giving us some insight into what the cultural stigma was about this city that she found herself in, saying that it was a, and I quote, godless city, and was known as, and I quote, our most bitter of enemies. That's how they saw this village. 
And yet Jesus goes to the Gentile village here and interacts with a woman there. And you need to know that the Gentiles were viewed by Jesus' peers, even by the other rabbis of the day. They were viewed and referred to as dogs. But it was, a, it was a derogatory term. The term that would be used for dog was really a stray dog or a wandering dog, a dog that would move in a pack and be a menace and have an appetite that would never be satisfied, an insatiable appetite. That's what it's talking about. These are scroungy, uh, nasty dogs that would just wreak havoc on villages and towns that people were on high alert from. But the word that Jesus uses is very different. The word that he uses in some translations is translated for you little dogs or even puppies because that's really what he's talking about here. It's a different word completely that really is best translated as that, as puppies. So Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, takes the cultural stigma of you nasty people, you nasty dogs, and says with affection, you little puppies that need yours too. You little puppies that are dependent on someone else's care, an endearing, endearing term. I mean, it's hard to imagine Jesus having this banter with a harsh tone. It's hard to imagine him having this banter without anything, with anything other than a gentle, tender voice. It's important, I think, that we understand that because there's a feminist scholar who's gained some popularity in saying that what Jesus does here is not just chauvinistic and demeaning, it's outright slander. And slander is sinful, it's in rebellion. To God. And so if that's true of what Jesus is doing here, then we don't have a sinless Savior. We have a sin-filled rabbi, which means that we don't have a, a capable Savior or substitute for our sins. That's where it would leave us if that's our interpretation of this story. But Jesus isn't demeaning. He isn't demonstrative here. On the contrary, he's taking the sting out of what, what has, has been in the culture, this demeaning and demonstrative attitude towards this woman and towards her village. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, he says that this was playful banter that Jesus engaged with her in. And Jesus points then to something that's quite obvious, an order that exists in every home. He says it this way in verses 27 and 28. He says, you don't set a dog at the table with the family and let them eat what belongs to the kids. Well, I mean, unless you really love your dog that much, and that's weird. I, I don't want to call you out, and not in public especially, but... I mean, can you imagine? Someone else called you out. I'm sorry. That was a softball pitch for you. I mean, can you imagine someone taking their little, their little dog out of their purse and reaching underneath it and pulling out a stick of gum and offering it to you? I mean, they're like, no. I, that our culture today, the, the, our love for dogs, it's a beautiful thing. By beautiful, I'm not a dog person, okay? So it's not beautiful to me. I'm not a dog person. I've never been accused of being a dog person. I do have some friends who are dog people and all of them have the same rules. Their first rule is dogs don't eat human food. Their second rule, because they know that they won't follow that rule, is dogs don't eat human food from our table while we're eating dinner. Their third rule, because they know that they still won't follow it, is okay, fine. The dogs don't eat from our table human food, even though we'll give it to but not until we're all done with dinner and then we'll give them the leftovers from the table because we can't deal with the fact that they're begging and cute and all of those things. And the one exception, of course, to that is if anything falls on the floor during the meal, we're not going to kick the dog away. The dog can clean the floor and get what's left over on the floor. Now track with me. That's the image. They've got an amen. There you go. There's your dog person. This is what Jesus actually describes here. He's talking about puppies or people here. He's talking about people. 
In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, he says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Make no mistake about it, Jesus would come first to the Jews for them. He'd come with a primary vocation to proclaim to the Jewish people that the Jewish Messiah had come, that their deliverer had arrived, that they were waiting for. He would then entrust the mission of reaching the Gentiles to his disciples when he'd say, Go into all the nations, preaching and teaching and baptizing them. But his primary purpose, he even says it in this passage in Matthew's gospel in chapter 15. He says, I was sent, I was not sent except for the lost sheep of Israel. He understood that, that he would come first and foremost to the Jews to reveal himself. And then he'd have these moments where, yes, two Gentiles as well. But his primary purpose was the family at the table who was anticipating his arrival, that that's what he came for. And in the last passage, Jesus makes the statement that all food is clean. And here he's demonstrating that all people are clean. And in the end, he's demonstrating by healing this woman and by giving grace to her that even all people can be made uh, sinless and clean and restored and have a seat at the table. Now, to be Jewish and to come uh, or to not have to be Jewish and to be able to come to Jesus to be saved is, is a point that's being made here. And then a point that's opened up throughout the remainder of the New Testament that, that worship and that coming to Jesus has nothing to do with auth or with ethnicity. It has everything to do with authenticity, that Jesus will welcome everyone. There's desperation in this woman. There's persistence, but there's also a great deal of humility in this woman. She wasn't phased or deterred by Jesus' response when, when his response could have been perceived potentially as lacking compassion. Scripture tells us that God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And that's what we see in this moment is Jesus giving grace to this lady. And sometimes for us in our approach to God, when we don't get the immediate response that we're hoping for, which can leave us feeling deterred and, and discouraged because we're not getting it, we're discouraged from trusting him even, when that's the tension we live in, this woman stands in a contrast to that. This woman also stands in a stark contrast to the Pharisees who approached to Jesus seemed based exclusively, their approach to God seemed based exclusively on their ability to make themselves clean and worthy. But she didn't come to fight for her rights. She didn't come and say, I don't deserve this. My family hasn't earned this. What we've earned is, and deserved is better than this. She says none of that. Instead, she came and said, have mercy. Have mercy. And sometimes I need to be reminded, and, and maybe you do too, I don't have to fight with God in order to fight for myself. I think sometimes I have to fight with God in order to get him to care for me. But I don't need to argue with God and convince him to care about what's happening to me. He already immensely, tremendously does. And when I question it, he points me towards a cross, which demonstrates the depth of his care for us. Again, this woman seems to be the first person in all of Jesus' interaction with people to get it, to get one of his parables, to watch the story be something that, that was not intended to offend her, but was actually intended to serve as a challenge and an invitation to her to lean into Jesus in faith, not to push her away, but to draw her in. And she was well aware that, that she wasn't approaching Jesus here based upon her own goodness, but she was begging in humility that Jesus would respond based on his own goodness. That's the gospel. 
that we don't approach Jesus based on our own goodness or merit, but that we approach Jesus based on his goodness, his goodness, his merit on our behalf. You see, I think that this woman in her story, they illustrate very well for us the two ways that, that those of us who sometimes fail to let Jesus be our Savior, it, it reveals to us the way that we let or the way that we fail to let him do that. And that's that either we're too proud, we have this superiority complex that I'm too good for this. You can't call me that. You can't refer to me as a puppy and say that I'm that needy and that, that I need that kind of benevolence and care and that I'm not entitled with a seat at the table. I'm too proud for this. Or for some of us, it's the exact opposite. It's an inferiority complex. It's that we'd fail to approach Jesus and allow him to be our savior and to love on us because I'm awful. I'm so undeserving. I could never be loved by him. You see, the gospel is so very unique and the gospel tells me that I am far worse than I had imagined and yet simultaneously tells me I'm far more loved than I'd ever hoped or dreamed. Those two realities are what make up the uniqueness of the gospel's promise. Listen, I have my own moments where I like this woman. I find that that Jesus reminds me that my priorities don't always align with him, that, that, that for me to, or for him, if he was going to yield to my demands and, and my requests and my expectations, it may very well be diminishing his true vocation, his primary purpose, because that's what he's telling her. I have this primary purpose that I'm here for. Do you understand that? And she leans in and says, yes, but she tells him, but, but a little puppy even deserves the little crumbs that fall from the table. But a good person wouldn't swipe the crumbs away or wouldn't push the dog, but would allow the puppy to come and to eat. Listen, I can lose sight of true purpose, his true purpose of rescuing and redeeming and restoring the world because I just want to feel free from present moments of pain, from my current discomfort, from my issues today, from the anxiety I felt this morning. When his promise to me is, I'm going to work all those things together for good. And that good is not the ease of my life. That good is the eternal good of making all things new again. We need to be careful to not craft a healer of our own liking who exists just to bring ease to my life rather than freedom and redemption from sin and Satan and eternal life. Her approach to Jesus is so beautiful because it's marked by desperation and persistence and humility and faith faith. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus marvels at it and says, woman, great is your faith. And immediately the demon left her. And then she believed him at his word and she left too. She didn't ask for proof like, Jesus, I'm not leaving unless you go with me or unless you prove to me that the demon is gone. She didn't demand any of that. She took Jesus at his word and she chose to move forward in faith. These are those moments where you're meant to dance in the kitchen long before the provision has arrived, where you're meant to give thanks and hope that you have a good God who will care for you. And it might look different than you anticipate, but he'll be there with and for you. Here's where we quickly shift gears to land the plane. And that's that it's not just her that we're meant to look at, her great faith, but we're meant to learn of Jesus' great compassion and power here. In the end, it wasn't just that Jesus healed her daughter. What did Jesus accomplish here? He revealed himself to this mother in the midst of her daughter's ailment. That's what he was accomplishing. He did something deeper and greater than anyone else was aware of or even asking for. I think it's so important, yes, that we approach God with our needs and hurts and that we'd approach him with a sense of desperation, understanding, God, I cannot do this without you. 
approaching him even with persistence. I'm determined to not become disheartened because things are beyond my own understanding or beyond my own ability to figure them out. But I'm going to keep coming back to you because I have a humility that's willing to say that, Jesus, I just need your help that I don't always know what's best. And that if I have a God that's big enough for me to be angry at, powerful enough for me to be frustrated with because he's not doing something that I think he's capable of doing, then I also simultaneously have a God who's far more wise than I give him credit for, who's wise enough to have reasons for allowing those things that are past my finding out, that are deeper still for me to understand. I need to approach him with faith, choosing to trust him in his character, choosing to believe and choosing to move forward. But let's be honest, this is the hard thing. Here's the rub. It's when we're desperate and when we're persistent and we beg with humility for God just to work things out, but the response that we get are, is not what we'd hoped for. When the response that comes is not what we wanted in a relationship or, or with a college application and acceptance letter. It's, it's with someone's health that we've just pressed in and said, Jesus, please, or even with our own insecurities that we lay before him and say, Jesus, just fix these things and take them away once and for all. When your only choice left seems to be, I either give up and throw in the towel, and this is it on Team Jesus, or in humility, I admit that I might not know better than God after all, or I might not know what's best after all, and then in faith, choosing to move forward to continue to trust. This is exactly what played out just a few chapters ago in Mark 5. You probably remember this, where Jesus goes and he frees this man from a demon that refers to himself as legion, for there are many demons plaguing this man. But after Jesus frees the man from the demons, you remember that the man comes to Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and he begs Jesus, Jesus, let me just go with you. Take me with you. Now, now, part of that was, Jesus, I want to be where you are. Do you understand, though, a part of that was, Jesus, these are the people who chained me in a cave. Don't leave me with these people. Jesus, take me from this hard situation. Don't send me back to them. In that story, Jesus is asked three questions. He answers yes to two of them and no to one. He answers yes to the demons who say, don't throw us anywhere else. Don't drive us anywhere but to the pigs. He says, okay. To the village who say, Jesus, we want you out of here because you've ruined our economy by pushing those demons into our pigs that then went off into the river, into the lake. And, and so we're asking you to leave. And so Jesus said, okay, yes, I'll go. But then he answered no to the man when he said, Jesus, can't I just go with you? It must have crushed him. But Jesus told him, no, I, I don't want you with me because I want you to go. It's chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. He says, I want you to go instead to your own village and to your own family to testify of these things. He had to have desperation and persistence and faith, but it wasn't a magic formula that got the guy what he wanted. What it did instead was functioned as baby steps that led him to deeper faith. And that's what God was after. See, here's the problem is we, we assume that some of these things are like a formula, like, well, if I have these things a part of my life or in my heart or in my practice, then Jesus is obligated to give me what he wants. No, they're not like that at all. It's not a magic formula. They are baby steps towards greater intimacy and faith in him. And because this guy chose to still trust Jesus rather than being discouraged and deterred, Look what happens in this story, because at the end of what we just read in chapter 7, right on the heels of that in verse 31, it says, as he enters this region then of the Decapolis, the Decapolis, the 10 city area region, this is the area where he healed that demon-possessed guy, two verses into it, by verse 33, it says the entire multitude has greeted him. 
When he had first arrived there, there was a singular demon who recognized Jesus. By the time he came back because of that man's testimony and because he stayed in faith, an entire multitude of people are bringing their sick and disease to Jesus saying, we believe that you can do for us what you did for him. Do you see what happens when we walk by faith? Multitudes are flocking to Jesus because they've heard of him and been convinced of, of Jesus's power because of one man's bold testimony, bold testimony and humble faith that was willing to yield to Jesus in the midst of disappointment and stick it out. My friends, do you see the gospel in this story? That Jesus brought you into the family and set you at the table. But for Jesus to do that, his own seat at the table had to be given up. He, in a sense, would give up his own identity even as a son in the household, in the family. He would do things even that would allow him to be treated as an enemy rather than a son so that we would be adopted as sons and daughters, so that we could have a seat at that table, having God provide for us so that we could belong there. In a very real sense, Jesus would become the dog so that we could belong at the table as sons and daughters at the table of God. That's the gospel. Let me read you an excerpt from a letter that was written by a pastor in the mid-1700s. He said it this way. As he wrote a friend, he said, You say it is hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. You then express not only a low opinion of yourself, which is right, but also too low an opinion of the person, work, and promise of the Redeemer which is wrong. Those words were penned by John Newton. He's a famous slave ship owner turned abolitionist uh, who wrote the great song, Amazing Grace, about the redeeming work of Jesus in his own life. My friends, for us, we would have been satisfied with the crumbs from the table, but Jesus was not satisfied with merely giving us the crumbs. The story tells us instead he gives us his own body. You see, the last thing I tell you, and we'll celebrate communion as we do this, is that we're meant to respond to this story, to respond personally to what Jesus does in this story. And a part of that is that we respond like Jesus in this story, and I wish I had more time to get into this, but I'll just throw this out there for you to chew on, that there are positions in the culture that, that God's people should have occupied but had vacated and because of that, the culture was hurting and others could jump in and occupy those spaces. Those spaces, think of this, this story falls on the heels of a community that wanted Jesus to be their king and he refused to and told them instead as he fed them bread that I'm here to give you life, not to give you victory over Rome, but freedom from sin and slavery. That's what I'm here for. He redirected them and their hopes away from a political leader that they thought would rescue them and says instead, your hope should not be in those who will fail you again and again, generation after generation, these political leaders. Your hope should be in a savior named Jesus. But the other thing Jesus demonstrates in this story is that there is a seat that, that can be vacated by the people of God that would sit between different racial groups and even, even in gender issues and gender tension and gender inequality. And for us in the 21st century in America, just us in the last two years here in America, we can be frustrated by those who have taken the place in the middle of all of that. 
We can be frustrated by the political response to it. We can be frustrated by our own politicians and their stance on things like immigration and racial issues, by a BLM movement. You don't like the organization. But here's the hard reality is that at some point we have to stop back and look in the mirror and say, why is it that these people are standing in the place that we were meant to stand? Because Jesus stood there. He went into the village. He stood across a racial line with a person that he, that he by, by the culture around him, was forbidden to sit with. And then he loved her. And he listened to her. And he healed her. He sat with a Samaritan. He opened her heart. He, I don't think in the story of the woman at the well that Jesus exposed her infidelity, saying, you've been married this many times over. I think Jesus opened her heart that she'd been left that many times over because she was barren. And as Jesus opened that up for her, he loved her there and offered her something that could satisfy her. But he sat in a place that others had moved back from that, that his people ought to occupy for us as the church. We should pray, yes, that maybe something like just happened in Texas maybe should happen here, where our state maybe shifts their view on abortion but before we pray that, we ought to stand up and say, and I'm willing to be a part of the solution by giving of my time and my finances, by giving and tutoring, not just a crisis pregnancy center, but families and kids in foster care. Because we can say someone vote the right thing into place or someone make the right decision, but we don't want to give of ourselves because the truth is our greatest value is our own comfort. We can say that yes, this, what's happening in Afghanistan is tragic, but we can watch a woman pass her child off and then at the same time feel very deeply convicted that those people should not be allowed to come here and get a free ride on our tax dollars. Well, they wouldn't be getting it on our tax dollars if we, the church, stood in the place we were meant to stand and cared for them. Because this is what Jesus does in the story. And we're so silly to fail to realize that we have been the ones who have needed that. We're so entitled that we only see ourselves as the ones who have everything and withhold the good from others. We were the puppy. We were the outsider. And Jesus gave so much to give it to us. A part of responding to Jesus is loving people the way that he did and re-entering the spaces that the church, the people of God once occupied, vacated and have allowed others to occupy. We need to re-enter those spheres. Do you know that hospice care gets its term from in ancient times when Christian hospitality was displayed when the Roman plague ravaged the city and Christians brought at risk to themselves and giving themselves the plague and dying with those they cared for. They gave end of life care so that people could retain their dignity. They gave that to the Romans who hunted them down. And ever since then we call it hospice care because of the Christian hospitality that was on display. You know, the first hospitals, that movement in the world was because of Christians taking people into their own home, wealthy Christians who then give their private physician to the care of others. Do you know that orphanages didn't exist until the people of God said, we will break the cultural norm and we'll take in children who don't share our same bloodline because they're made in the image of God, that there was no such thing as an orphanage until families opened their homes and brought those children in. But we, the church, have stepped out of the place we were meant to occupy, and now we argue and are frustrated with those who have taken our place there. 
yes, pray and yes, vote, but at some point, let's step back into some of those places and see what God would do as we interact with an individual who lives in the tension of those places. Some of this is about us responding like Jesus, but undoubtedly a big piece of this is us responding to Jesus. Responding to Jesus as people who are broken. We're not meant to read these stories and just go, this is really great that he did this for them, but just hear me say, if you're a mom today whose heart's broken, there's an invitation here for you to stand and say, Jesus, not based on my good works, I don't deserve it, but I'm asking based on your mercy, would you please touch my child? There's an invitation that we ought to respond to here in Jesus. And the invitation is, would you as a father bring your children to me and say, Jesus, the ones that are wayward, I need Jesus, your mercy to work in their lives. I'm going to lean on you for reconciliation in our home. There's an invitation here for, for husbands and wives who grieve the fact that their womb has not been opened to say, Jesus will take you at this invitation. Like a mother who'd approach, approach you for mercy and say, Jesus, please. There's an invitation here for every heart that's heavy, for those who are afflicted by suffering, that we would stand and plead. And we do not say, Jesus, won't you deliver us because we've been so good? We say, Jesus, won't you deliver us because it's who you are. You are good. And you've been good to us. I don't approach you saying, based on my, my goodness or what I deserve, I approach you, as this woman did, understanding my place and position in this relationship, and that, that I cannot give to you what what I'd need to give in order to feel like I deserve this, but I'm asking because you're good and did for me what I could never do, would you give it? So we'll finish by taking communion, but I want to pray first. And I just ask, if you're like this woman and you need to stand and say, Jesus, I'm the mother, or I'm the father, or we're the family, or I'm that person who needs to respond and say, Jesus, just based on your mercy, would you move? If you're that person, why don't you stand? There's no shame in that. Jesus made himself vulnerable for us. And if it's vulnerability that we respond with and just saying, Jesus, I'm a person who needs to give you today the heavy thing on my heart, knowing that you're merciful, then do me a favor. Why don't you stand with me and I'll pray. And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm standing not because I'm preaching. I'm standing also because I told you I got a text message earlier that wiped me out. So I'll pray for me and for you. But why don't you stand with me? Jesus, we don't come just to learn we don't come just to know things. Jesus, we come because we need you. We don't need to just have new ideas or concepts or principles. We need an encounter with the living God. And we are mothers and fathers. We are families. We are people who Jesus needs your touch today. Jesus, would you give it? Jesus, we know our place. We are not on a level ground or footing with you. You are good and we are not. But you have been so good that you took the brokenness of our lives and you paid for it. And then you gave us all that was good about you and you reward us for it. Jesus, thank you for grace and mercy. And we plead for more of it, Jesus, today. In our homes, in our families, in our lives, Jesus, we need you. Would you draw close to us and touch and move and heal and power? For each person that's standing, Jesus, respond to their faith as you responded to this woman's faith. And reach a hand out and touch each one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And Father, bless my friends. Jesus, be in their homes and a part of their lives. 
God, speak to them this week and visit with them. God, encourage them and challenge them. Jesus, we want to look more like you. And so make us more into your image, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.